Um, and actually, I'm really pumped you're here because we're going through this series called Resonate in Three Parts. And basically what that means is we're outlining exactly who we are as a church uh, in three parts. So over the last three months, three parts. Uh, the first part, we have those slides, no, no, I'm flying blind. All right, the first part <laughs> was uh, we're a church people who don't have it figured out, and that's okay. And that was like kind of a fun thing to walk through. We kind of took the posture of like, we don't, we, like, there's a lot of mystery in this faith thing, and we can't possibly hold on to all of it. So, like, it's okay to walk into this and walk into this with faith. And then part two is the more concrete version of that, which is like the things we know for sure. So we were talking about things like kingdom and grace and goodness. Uh, and part three, which we're in right now, is like the most exciting part for me because we're talking about no matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from, you are welcome and embraced in this space. And I think that's like one of the biggest core values we have. And in fact, it's so big that we're not just doing this for a month, we're doing this for like six weeks. So we tacked on an extra two and it'll take us right in to Easter. Uh, so let me, uh, let me pray for us this morning and then we'll, we'll jump into, uh, we're talking about hate this morning, so that's light. Uh, let me pray. God, thank you so much for this Sunday morning. Thank you that uh, we get to come here and talk about the things that matter most. And this morning, as we tackled a really big uh, and difficult um, subject, I just pray that you would be in this uh, and with us. And uh, don't let me mess up. Thank you, God. Amen. Uh, so hate. <laughs> hate uh, is a lot like love. We use this word a little too flippantly, right? If you really hated, like, if you hated all the restaurants that you said you'd hate, you'd have like a stomach ulcer if it was like real vicious hate. Because when hate enters the scene, it's powerful and it's ugly and it, it kind of takes over. So the title of this morning uh, is Hate is a Creeper. And basically what that means is that hate, kind of like love, but in a different way, they're, they're very similar. Uh, and hate like love, like we use that word too much and this morning, what I want to talk about is kind of the dark version of that, like the real heavy stuff. Uh, and to do that, we're going to go to the Bible, because it says it better than I do every time. So this comes out of Exodus 1, 8 through 16. Let's read this together. And it says, Now a king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He said to his people, The Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Come on, let's be smart and deal with them. Uh, otherwise, they will grow in number, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. As a result, the Egyptians put foremen and forced work gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. Let's pay attention to how this escalates. So there's foremen, uh, and they harass them with hard work. They had them build storage uh, cities named Python uh, and Ramses for the Pharaoh. But, more, but the more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread. So much so that the Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. So they're growing, and the, the Egyptians are, are hating that. But the more they, uh, sorry, and so the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and by forcing them to do all kinds of other cruel work. The king of Egypt spoke to two Hebrew midwives, this is things where really take a dark turn here, named uh, Shebra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see the baby being born, if it's a boy, kill him, and if it's a girl, you can let her live. So it looks like hate is no new thing, right? This was written thousands and thousands of years ago, and still people are struggling to deal with people who don't look like them. Uh, take this passage. This is found in the book of Exodus. That's the second book in the Bible. So it quickly, quickly describes this, like, ever-escalating situation where there's the Israelites, and they've come into this land through a guy named Joseph. We covered this in our story series. 
And uh, they come in, but then over time, the pharaohs start to die off, and a new one comes into power who doesn't remember who this Joseph guy is, doesn't remember any of the promises that he makes. And so he begins to look at these Israelites with disdain, like, who are these people? Why are they in our land? And why are they thriving? And why are we letting them? So we see it goes from like forced labor to slavery to genocide. That's only in eight verses. <laughs> so how did we get here so quickly? And the answer is hate. Uh, UCL, University College London, in 2008, they did a study because they wanted to see what hate looks like in the brain. So basically, like when you are hating something, what does that actually physically do to your brain? And the, the answer is this. Do we have that picture? So what they, what they found, they had uh, people going to an MRI, and then they would, take a, they would take a look at a picture of a neutral subject, so something that they were just kind of neutral about. And then they would show them an image of something they hate. Uh, and then they were able to measure what that looks like. It's kind of an awkward process because you would have to hand in the picture of someone that you hate. <laughs> but uh, they were able to measure it. And so what they named this, this thing right here, these like, like four little blips, uh, is the hate circuit. And like this is nothing new because neurologists have been studying the brain and like different things for forever. The breakthrough in this study, though, we're getting real nerdy this morning. The breakthrough in this study was that there's another circuit that looks identical to it. And that circuit is the love circuit. So when your brain is on hate, it is almost identical to when you love something. More specifically, romantic love. But like, isn't that, that's nuts. When we hate, it's the same brain neurons firing as when we love. And I think this is why hate is so subversive. And it's a perfect picture, because sometimes we can make hate out to be love. We name it things like justice and, and sin in the church lingo, right? But it's, it's subversive because it's so uh, close. Uh, so at first, that seems impossible. When you think about it, it makes so much sense. This is why hate is a sneaky creeper. I love writing that. Uh, hate has the ability to trick us into believing it's love. How many times have you acted selfishly out of what you thought was love for another person or group, but it actually just served yourself? And this gets especially tricky when we think about it in terms of church. The sad reality is that church is actually a perfect stage for hate, because hate can be justified in terms of sin and justice, but it has no grounds in grace and reconciliation. We make up rules that objectify the other and claim it out of love. So many have walked away from the church, and so many will continue to do that because we make up these rules and call it love. So unfortunately, yeah, because of the church and the small minority within us, the really loud minority that's within the church, Christians are known more for the people that we keep out than the people that we bring in. So we're known more for hate and for love, and that's simply terrible. So here in this space this morning, what I want to do is take that narrative back. We're going to be known by the love we pour out and not the hate that tricks us into believing that it's love. Uh, to do that, let's talk about movies. So I love movies. Uh, I'm actually really introverted, so like movies are a perfect escape for me. And I'll tell you my favorite moment in movies, and it's not the movie itself, it's not the previews, it's not the popcorn, it's not the candy. Uh, it's the moment where the lights go down, and, and that moment, in that moment, when the lights fade, the last preview's ended, and we're about to watch the movie, when the moment that those lights go down, I just sigh this huge like, sigh of relief, and all the introverts will get this, because nobody can get me. <laughs> so like, there's this feeling of like, oh man, yeah, for the next hour and a half, no phone, not even, like, I can't even talk to Chelsea beside, like, I'm just zoned in, and I'm completely in the dark, and no one can get me. Uh, and it's, it's what fascinated me about coming to L.A., because this is a place 
that people love movies, and more like this, this city runs off of movies and good stories. And so I was fascinated to come down here and see what that's like, and now it's completely boring. When you're here first, you're like, oh my gosh, there's a movie star, there's a movie, and now I'm just like, yeah, that's Rachel Adams getting her coffee, I'm gonna go along my business. Um, I, but I wanna get at something, and I think it happens here more than most places. Uh, it's, it's something, scientists have probably studied this, and there's a way better name for it, but I'm gonna take a stab at it. I'm gonna call it the hero complex. So to a certain degree, and I'm going out on a limb here, maybe none of you are thinking this way. <laughs> to a certain degree, I think we're all kind of move, like living out our own movie script, right? In the back of our mind, there's sort of this idea that we are living in this story and that we are the hero of that story. And while that's true, to a certain extent, like we are the hero of our own journey, that's not always the case, right? Like the, the movie script that is our life is far less linear than that, and it takes twists and it takes turns, and there are some times where we're gonna have to play a supporting role, right? We're gonna have to step in for a friend or a family member, and there are some times we're gonna have to play an extra, and that's what I call vacation. That's sitting by the pool, we're just doing nothing, right? But there's a, there's a darker side to that, and that is that uh, all of the flowery goodness of being like a supporting character or being an extra is all good and fine, but there are other times where we think we're playing the hero and we might actually be playing the villain. If you think about any good movie, any good movie, the villain is never like aware that he is a perfectly maniacal character. I mean, unless you're watching a cartoon and he's like laughing, an evil laugh, chuckle or whatever, but there's never an instance where the villain recognizes that he is the villain. So I really like, I took a hard look at my life this week and I kind of like went like, how many times have I thought that I was playing the hero in my own story, but like maybe, maybe to someone else I was the villain. Like maybe to someone else I was doing terrible things and I didn't even know about it. And I think that's why hate is so effective. It's because we don't always know when we're right in the middle of it because we're inside of our own bubble. So how, I, if we're inside our own bubble and we're entrenched in our own story, how do we begin to recognize if we're the villain or if we're the hero? How do we begin to recognize if we're acting in hate or if we're acting in love? And I think the answer to this, the key to all of this, is knowing the difference between passion and compassion. Passion and compassion. So to do that, let's look at the definitions of passion and compassion. Do we have those? Okay, over the brain. Passion uh, is a strong and barely controllable emotion. That's passion. Now, what's compassion? Do we have that one, compassion? There we go. Uh, compassion, sympathetic pity and concern for the suffering or misfortunes of others. Are we seeing the difference here? To illustrate this, I picked some uh, cheesy Instagram memes that the church loves to use. So let's pop those up there, Noah. The first one, okay, cool. So what I wanna do is put the definition for passion in here and then illustrate how stupid these are. So find your passion. Really, find your uncontrollable or barely controllable emotion, right? Next. Uh, without your barely controllable emotion, life is nothing. Next one. Uh, do it with a barely controllable emotion or not at all. And then finally, uh, from a barely controllable motion to profession. Uh, so we get this idea, we've got like, so, somewhere we picked up the narrative that all we need is passion, right? All we need is to like, go get it, that's all we gotta do. When really like, we've got those definitions flipped. Imagine me reading all of these memes with compassion in there besides passion. A sympathetic outpouring for the other. That's the point. See, passion is selfish, right? It's for me. So I'm gonna like go get this and this is all mine. And compassion is only acting towards the other. It is going and saying, what do you need? And if we live our lives in that posture, we're starting to look a lot more 
like Jesus. Uh, I want to give you a window into how Jesus used this compassion thing, because Jesus uses passion, right? Passion isn't all bad, but it has to have this lens of compassion over it for it to be effective. So what I'm going to argue this morning is that Jesus only used passion as a vehicle for compassion. Let me give you just a small window into how that's true, and let's keep the first scripture that we read in mind as we read this scripture. This is kind of a chunk here. Uh, this comes out of Matthew 2, 14 through 16. It says, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night. This is about Joseph. He just had, got visited by an angel, like we all do, in a dream, uh, that told him that he has to get out because Herod's going to start killing uh, children. So he said, uh, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger. In accordance with the time, he learned from the Magi. So, does that sound familiar? Because it should. We're like linking narratives. This Exodus was the first one that we read, and now we're in Matthew. We're in the New Testament. We're at the start of a gospel, which is actually going to be the end of the story, and we're still dealing with the same problem. This is actually part of the Christmas story, uh, but it's not as convenient as the manger and the shepherds. This deals with the things we read about in the beginning of the Bible. Once again, the powers that be, Herod would have served as like king over the Jewish people, respond with hate and violence over the threat of another people group thriving. Justice is once again a convenient excuse for self-preservation and hurt. It's genocide all over again, and it's something that Jesus' family actually had to flee their home for years to get away from. So when the angel visits Joseph, he says, you got to get out because Jesus, like, because of Jesus' birth, Herod, who's the king, is trying to kill all the people Jesus' age, all the boys, all the little children, because he's threatened that this new king has come on the scene. It's really interesting is the Magi were not Jewish people, but they followed a star because they knew that was their sign in their tradition that this Messiah, this like person who was going to save all of this new king was going to be born. And so when they get on the scene, Herod's even more shocked because he's like, this, this is from a totally different tradition. These guys have traveled miles to come and find this kid. I, I better get nervous about this. I need to do something. And what does he do? Hate triggers in again, and he calls it justice, right? He's trying to hold on to what he has. And if we look even deeper, they flee to Egypt, Right? So they said, go to Egypt. And that should sound very familiar because that's where the people were at the beginning of this story. Jesus grew up in the compassion of God who saved him and with a passion for his people who died. You have to remember that Jesus at a very early age would have heard this story over and over again. Like, you were saved just as a boy. Forget the deity thing for one minute. Just as a boy, fully man, fully God, right? Just as a boy, his parents would have come to him and said, here's your story. And it's a doozy. <laughs> but here's part of your story. We had to flee because your life was in trouble, but God saved us and he brought us to Egypt. Jesus would have been raised in a family that would have understood hate firsthand. And there are two ways that Jesus could have dealt with this as sort of, you know, God. He could have gone violently back in 
And we've seen that. God, I mean, there's stories in the scripture of, of God wiping out nations. Like, it's not impossible that he could have done that. Or he could have come back in with compassion. So he could have come in with passion and heat, and I'm going to wipe everybody out. Or I'm going to come in in compassion and flip the script. I'm going to come in, and I'm going to live my life so radically different, I'm going to set these people free in a way that they never even thought was possible. And I'm going to do that with compassion. And that eventually leads, because it's so radical, to him being killed for it. Right? The cross. There's death at the end of this because it's so radical and crazy and new, and the powers that be just can't deal with it. You see, whenever we step out of the bubble, whenever we step out of our own story, our own passion, death is right around the corner. It's a really cheery statement. But death is always right around the corner. Stick with me. The beauty of Jesus' death is that it's just the beginning of the story. There's, there are people, and, and they're always the people that history remembers. They're your Martin Luther King, they're your Gandhi. They're killed for stepping out of the norm and changing the story. And it goes back to that villain and hero thing. There were people who violently opposed Martin Luther King, thought he was a villain, right? And there were people, there were British people who thought Gandhi was a villain because he was setting those people free, right? They stepped out of their own tradition, they stepped out of their bubble, and they stepped into the story of others. And because of that, they lost their life. So like, there's, there's pure examples of whenever that happens, th these are the people that we remember. These are the people we read about in school. These are the stories that last forever. It's the people stepping out in compassion for others. And in our own lives, when we step out in compassion, we start being a church that really embraces everyone, there's going to be a little bit of death. And it's not going to be as drastic as us nailing ourselves to the cross. It's going to be much more subtle than that. But think about it. When you actually start living your life in compassion and really start loving people, it's going to look different. And that might lead to the death of a friendship, or it might lead to the death of like, your relationship with a certain family member, or maybe it's as dramatic as an entire lifestyle that you have to switch around and like, refigure out. The message of the cross is that there's life on the other side, and that that life is actually simply so much more fulfilling than the life when we're inside our own story and inside of our bubble. So I want to invite us this week to try and evaluate our story. Take a look at your story from front to now. It's not the end, front to now. And realize that like along the way, you're not just living selfishly, hero path, going forward, passion, no. Start living with compassion. Start living for the other. And if we can live our lives that way, I think it's going to be so much more fulfilling, and we can see that in the life of Christ. So we're going to take communion this morning. Uh, so you can, you can come up, you can grab. Uh, Ron always pre-cuts this, so it's awesome. <laughs> uh, you can dunk it right in the line uh, and, and just remember what Jesus has done for us and what he's uh, going to continue to do. And then also, and I don't say this enough, this is our, this is our like, main hub right here. We're super high tech. <laughs> uh, but you can put in your prayer requests. All of you have community cards that should be there. So please fill those out. We'd love to hear from you. Um, we'd also love to be able to email you once a week. So if you can put your email in there, uh, that would be great. And just pop it in the box with your prayer requests, your comments, uh, whatever it might be. And this is also a chance to be generous because this is where we take our offering. So um, yeah, let me pray, and then we can take communion. Lord, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, for the fact that we can live in compassion. And we can use passion, but only as a vehicle 
for compassion. And so I just pray over our week, I pray uh, over this church, over this space, that you would, you would lead us to be a church that really lives that out. That no matter who you are, what you've done or where you come from, you're fully welcomed and embraced in this space and that they are loved. That's the whole point of your church. Amen. So the first row can come up.